everybody, and welcome back to the Ocean Riders podcast. Conversations with creatives, entrepreneurs, thinkers and dreamers, who also happen to be surfers. My name's Imi, and I am your host. I'm really excited to be behind the mic after a few weeks of feeling a bit off. To be honest, a couple of weeks ago, I totally lost my voice and I couldn't even pronounce a word and so let alone record this intro. Now, what makes this episode even more special is that it was recorded outside in real life with one of the most inspiring people I've had the chance to meet. Her name is Heidi Tapia. She's basically a multi-potentialite. She studied psychology in Mexico, but you could say that surfing absolutely changed her life. Her true calling is adventure and the salty lifestyle. Heidi has had the most exciting life from freediving with whales in Tonga, being a surf instructor and living the dream in Byron Bay, and she's about to start various businesses. She's one fierce female making changes one wave at a time, and with immense joy, wisdom, and a great philosophy of making the most in life. In this conversation, we talk about Heidi's relationship with surfing, her adventurous lifestyle, and we get to learn a lot about whales and freediving too. I'll let Heidi introduce herself, but before I do, I just wanted you to picture the scene. It's 25 odd degrees. We're sitting at a picnic table at the Pass Cafe in Byron Bay just after having had the best longboarding session and sipping on a macadamia nut cup of tea. In fact, by the tone of my voice and the fact that it goes up an octave or two is proof that I was certainly stoked that day. I guess it doesn't get any better than that. So without further ado, please welcome Heidi Talina Tapia. And welcome to the Ocean Riders podcast. How are you today? I am really good, Amy. Thanks for having me. And it's really good to be talking to you today. I know. And this is the first on the Ocean Riders podcast. We're actually doing an outdoor episode in Byron Bay in front of the Pass Cafe. We've just been surfing for two hours. It's been an epic time. And I'm so grateful that you could make it today and, oh. and join me. So, yes, um, thank you. <laughs> salty, salty conversations are good. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> So, um, Heidi, do you think you could introduce yourself to the listeners? Yes, my name is Heidi Talina. Well, I guess I've been living in Australia for about 13 years. I'm originally from Mexico and I'm a passionate surfer. I like freediving and that's it. <laughs> <laughs> so whereabouts in Mexico are you from? I was born in Guadalajara, but grew up in Mexico City. Right, so it was landlocked. Yes. Totally landlocked. So totally. So what actually sort of introduced you or who introduced you to surfing in the first place? The TV. Yeah, I used to just watch videos of people surfing and it looked really easy. It looked really fun and I just decided one day I wanted to do that. So when... I finished university. I moved to Guadalajara, which is a smaller city than Mexico City, and it's closer to the coast. So I moved there. My parents were still in Mexico City, so I just got to the bank, got a credit card, <laughs> got myself a surfboard, a way to like small surfboard yeah. to learn on, but I thought that's all I needed and a new bikini and off I went. That's amazing. Yeah. So how did you actually learn? Did you just teach yourself to surf? I taught myself, yes. And I mean, looking back, I put myself in very tricky situations. I definitely, at that time in Mexico, there was not many women surfing and there was definitely no surf schools at all. 
So, yeah, I just watch videos and I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, you paddle, you stand up, you ride it. That's all you have to do. And yeah, it was, it was definitely, there was a few obstacles on the road for sure. Yeah. And so were you still studying by then or was that after you graduated from your degree? That was when I finished my degree. I was working in an interactive museum, so like a science museum mm -hmm. for mostly for kids, but I mean, it's really fun for adults as well. So I was basically Monday to Friday doing lots of research in front of the computer. And Friday's afternoon, I will put the surfboard, the hammock and the tent in the car, drive to the beach, get there for a sunset session and surf Saturday, surf Sunday morning and then Sunday afternoon, pack again, go back to work, be ready for Monday morning. Wow, that's such an adventure. So I was a weekend warrior yeah. for a while. <laughs> <laughs> and did you do that alone or were you with friends or this was just a sort of personal project? Yeah, I, I mean, I used to go by myself. Uh, sometimes you'll be lucky enough that, you know, some other friends will come so we can carpool. But um, yeah, I've never sort of been afraid of doing things on my own. So that was one. And that's another of the things that now I, looking back, I'm like, wow, like I was going out, you know, my parents didn't obviously, they didn't even know I was surfing and driving to the beach to go for a surf because <laughs> they, they would have said no. So <laughs> instead of asking for permission, I didn't say anything. But yeah, those were the situations I could probably would have. I mean, on the beach, there was always heaps of people and like, you know, I was never like surfing on my own, yeah. but yeah. yeah, I guess I could have taken a lot of other cautions, <laughs> precautions to it. That's such an adventurous spirit. And in fact, that's the whole kind of like motif of this conversation is how adventurous you are. <laughs> and where do you think that's come from, this adventurous spirit? I'm not sure. I think being landlocked was one of the things. I always wanted to travel. I've always wanted to just see as much and learn as much as I can. And I guess that just gave me like, the urge to get out and start doing things. Yeah. My, my sister told me not long ago that she thinks that I got all the adventure genes from, <laughs> from all the brothers and sisters. Cause everyone's quite, you know, like they still like doing active things and, She's like, no, I think you got them all. They put <laughs> them all the in the second, yeah, <laughs> in the second batch. So I'm not sure. I still do. Like, I mean, even now living in Byron Bay, I want to see more. I want to do more. Like, I would love to just live in a sailboat and like, you know, anchor wherever and wake up there and then see where the wind's going to take me next. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. And so when did you move to Australia? 13 years ago? Yes, in uh, August 2006. Right. And what was the urge to move to Australia? Was it the waves? No. Well, funny. Um, <laughs> in one of my weekend adventures, it was actually an Easter break. I went on my own to camp, one of my favorite beaches. That I, I would not tell the name because it's a secret <laughs> spot, but I'll tell you later. <laughs> so I was surfing. I was surfing there just camping and I met a Kiwi guy in the surf. So he approached me in the surf and he asked me if I had bought my surfboard in Australia. And I'm like, no, I wish. Like, I would love to go to Australia. But no, I bought it here. And he's like, oh, because it's exactly the same as my best friend's board. And I was like, no way. So we started talking and he was quite cute. And so we started hanging out for like the whole 10 days that I had left there. He was traveling with one of his friends. So 
It's a very small place, this one that I'm telling you. So it's only camping. There's only one place to eat. So, you know, you kind of end up hanging out with people that are around you and getting to know them. And that happened. He ended up staying in Mexico for about six months. And then he's like, you should come over to Australia. And I was like, all right. <laughs> so I thought I was coming over on a holiday. And yeah, you know, I had a, a visa for three months. And I didn't go back to Mexico <laughs> until three and a half years later. Wow. Yeah. So it was a Kiwi guy that <laughs> brought me here. Yeah. And did you come immediately to New South Wales or Queensland or did you travel a lot? I lived in the Gold Coast for a little bit and then we moved down to Lennox Head mm -hmm. and we lived there in a tent for about four months. It was wow. great. It was by the lake. We had the beach. So, you know, we'll go surfing in the beaches and then we'll just jump in the lake and it was cruisy. I mean, everything that I've always thought of like the Australian uh, lifestyle and, you know, everyone was surfing. And like when I got here, I was like, wow, <laughs> you know, in Mexico, there was like no surfing women then. Like, I mean, me and other five. And here it was like. You know, I could see definitely potential and lots more people were into it. And it didn't have the stigma that it had in Mexico at that time. And that was really refreshing just to be, you know, not be such a, like a black sheep when you're trying to do something that you really like. Yeah. Yeah. And so was it during that time that you decided to become a surf instructor? It took probably around three years. And I guess it was... One of the times I was sitting on the beach with one of my friends and he said, ah, look, it would be really cool to be a surf coach because you can, you know, you get paid to be in the surf all day. <laughs> and he was like, yes. So we decided to go in and take all our qualifications. So first we had to become lifeguards. And that was another thing that I thought it was great about Australia because you can just learn how to rescue people and join the surf club. And, you know, become more aware of the ocean. And I mean, I thought that was great. So I was like, yeah, I'm doing that for sure. <laughs> so we became lifeguards. We did a few um, volunteering patrols on the beach. And I think about six months later, we went down to Maroubra mm -hmm. and did our level one Surfing Australia qualification right. course. Right. That it takes about three days. There's theory and then practice so I guess they just want to see that you know how to negotiate rips and how to paddle through sets and duck dive and all that and yeah then came back to Byron I looked for a surf school to do my I guess volunteer hours and I found one that was run by a woman and I was like yeah I'm there <laughs> and it was good I ended up working there for about five six years wow afterwards wow, that's so cool and so was that your main job or did you have sort of side hustles and things like that at the same time to actually sort of pay for your rent and whatnot Yeah, side hustles, <laughs> always. Byron's like a place. It is funny because it kind of makes you develop a lot of skills. Mm -hmm. If you want to do what you really want to do, you might not make enough money yeah. to pay rent and eat and petrol and then still save and travel if that's what you want to do. But I guess that it makes you more adaptable and resilient because you have to sort of be be onto it yeah yeah flex your skills yeah and was it that time in your life that you actually 
decided to go and, and help look for humpback whales in Tonga or is that no that came way after really yeah. could you tell us the story yeah that came probably it's going to be five years ago and that was that was a random a very random thing so after probably seven years of me living here in Australia I took a trip to Bali surfing trip with a girlfriend and for about two and a half months and then halfway through we decided to go separate ways and I ended up meeting another girl from WA and just clicking with her and traveling with her years after like once a year we'll go where do we go now or maybe we should go back to Bali and just go for another surf trip and so one day I got super excited I called her and I'm like man there is really cheap tickets to Bali and then she's like, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm not going to go to Bali this year, I'm going to go to Tonga. And I'm like, why? <laughs> she's like, I'm going to go swim with humpback whales. And I'm like, oh, I mean, that sounded amazing. And I was like, well, whatever, you know. <laughs> and I'm like, well, okay. So I was a bit bummed out because I was not going to have a surf trip with Angie. But I said, okay, well, maybe I'll just, it's one of the opportunities, you know, either travel by myself and meet other people or just go somewhere else. And so three days later, she calls me and she's like, hey, there's a spot in the same trip that I'm going with the same group, the same team. And I told the lady that basically you're coming because she knows me so well. <laughs> and I was on the street because I had really bad reception at the house where I was living at the moment. So every time a phone call will get through my phone, I'll have to run to the street and pick it up. So when she tells me these news, I'm in the middle of the street, like jumping up and down going, we're going to Tonga. <laughs> and that was it. So that's how I got there. And from that trip, I ended up meeting the people that I've been working and living with in the island where I work. Wow. So could you tell us what it's all about, what this job is all about? Well, this job is a whale guide, we call it. As far as I know, I'm the first Mexican whale guide out there. <laughs> and we take people swimming with humpback whales. Tonga is it's been a whale sanctuary since the 70s, late 70s. But it's one of the places that basically lost 80% of the population due to whaling in the 50s and 60s. And no one really knew why the population of humpbacks in Tonga was so low until probably about 15 years ago when I think it's the granddaughter of one of the captains discovered a diary where he had recorded every whale that he had taken. And there was like thousands. So... Tonga became a sanctuary and basically to the day is one of the only places that you can swim with calves. So the humpback, the baby humpbacks. Wow. And I guess besides ecotourism, it's a little bit in our behalf. So the people that I work with were really focused on putting a little bit of education to our guests and just making it a bit of an experience, but something that, that we should treasure because it's a privilege even though you know you pay money obviously for it I think the fact that we can do it is a privilege yeah yeah and did you have to sort of fast track on marine biology to actually sort of get qualified for the job how did that sort of pan out 
Yeah, it was a fast track, uh, <laughs> studying and reading. But for me, that's never been a problem. I mm -hmm. love, I love reading and learning new things. And also there's a course that you have to do and pass that it's run by the government in Tonga with a lot of aid from Australia, New Zealand and the United States. And they like, you know, put the guidelines and regulations. So they teach you a little bit about the behavior, but also they how to enforce the regulations to make this a sustainable practice because ecotourism has that weird borderline in between being something that could be really good and educational and, and promote conservation and also deep into exploiting the resource so much that eventually gets damaged. Yeah. Yeah. And so what is the job of a whale guide? What's the role? So I guess number one, it's uh, inform our guests of the guidelines and regulations that we have to follow if we see a humpback. And the second part of my job when I'm there is spotting the whales. So, you know, I'm at the front of the boat and... I mean, everyone's looking, of course, and if a guest spots a whale, we go for it. But yes, yeah, spotting the whales. And then I go in the water first and see if that whale is interested in a human interaction or not. Right. Or so see the behavior. Yeah, yeah, there's signs that definitely we pay attention and we respect a lot. Right. So one of the signs that tell us that the whale doesn't want to interact with us is if they're slashing their tail underwater or if they're blowing bubbles underwater or if they just basically turn around and go. Yeah. We don't really chase whales and we are very respectful when they have a young calf, you know, their space and their time because it's basically like having a newborn baby. Yeah. There's people that don't mind, you know, Five days later, they want everyone to visit. And there's people that want to give themselves two weeks, three weeks to spend that time with the newborn and, and hang out. And I think it's the same. Yeah, We're very similar animals. But yeah, we basically, I look for the signs. If I see or think that the whale is willing to interact, then I call my swimmers. There is only four swimmers at the time with me. Okay. And we keep distance of five meters and we just sit there and interact with, with the whale. That must be an amazing and magical experience. Yes, it is. I mean, for me, it's basically, I feel like every time is the first time. Yeah. Like every time I, I still cry, I still laugh, <laughs> I still, you know, like, yeah. It just gives you a, a different type of awareness and, mm -hmm. and I just cannot owed by it. It's like, You're seeing a spaceship, but it's like a live spaceship that is looking at you, you know, <laughs> like you're locking eyes with this mammal that it's huge and is completely aware that you're there. And so it, that's just like, I don't know how to explain it, but it just makes me... Gives you goosebumps. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it is amazing. You should come one day. Yes, well, I'd love to. That sounds like such an amazing experience. And and so, is there a season where you have to go? Does it work by by seasons or like do you go all year round? How does that work out? No, yeah, the humpback whale season in Tonga will be the same one as here in Australia. So the South Hemisphere, they mate during July to October. 
Right. So that's when they leave Antarctica, they go up and they hang out there for a few months and then they go back. Right. And the interesting thing is like whales, so whales that have been born in Tonga, they will go back to Tonga. Okay. Even though they all meet back in Antarctica and they might hang out with whales from Australia and New Zealand, they all go to their places where where they were born to mate. Right. And I mean the trip takes about 6 weeks to get up there. The females as soon as they get pregnant, they go back to Antarctica. Okay. And then moms when they give birth in Tonga, they stay around you know, a month it depends until the baby is strong enough to, do the to make the trip back to Antarctica. And what happens in terms of feeding and everything? Because the mothers, do they have enough kind of uh, fat left over to feed their babies and to feed on food in the water? What happens to the humpback? Well, the adults don't eat at all when they are in Tonga. Right. So okay. their feeding time is Antarctica. And each humpback whale, each adult humpback whale, eats around one ton of krill and other little shrimp a day. Wow. And so they put on so much weight when they're in Antarctica. It's like, you know, let's get fat. And then they make the trip up there because I guess traveling for six weeks will take a lot. If the whale is pregnant, when they get to Tonga, they give birth. They feed their baby around 400 liters of milk a day. Wow. And they don't eat nothing. <laughs> so the water in Tonga is so warm that it doesn't have the nutrients for them to eat. And they spend so much energy eating because it's a big effort. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know, so they would spend way more energy trying to eat than actually just maybe not eating. Wow. Wow. That's really interesting. Yeah. So a baby humpback puts on about, this is all approximate, right? But it's about 50 kilos a day. That's extraordinary. And it must be so amazing to actually participate in that sort of whole moment in life when the calf is born and the, the bonding with the mother and, and everything. And do male humpbacks get in the way? I mean, is there a threat between the mother and the, for the mother and the calf during that season as well? Well, the males are basically the, to mate yeah. so it's it's really interesting like I mean there's so many behaviors that are very very cool to see and one of them is the male behavior when they're mating so if, if a female is available she has behaviors like peg slapping on the water or breaching or like tail slapping and she's basically saying boys I'm here <laughs> so one might come around you know check her out they be playful for a little bit but she keeps calling because it's not, you know, she wants to see who obviously is the strongest yeah. animal kingdom yeah. all the way. So then another one joins in. So we've been in heat runs. That's how we call them from the beginning. So we'll, we have had a female that's playful. We've seen the first male, the second, the third, the fourth, wow. the fifth. She can even have eight males hanging really yeah and she still keeps playing until the males decide to okay okay let's see who <laughs> is the strongest and they start basically fighting wow so how they fight they head lunch on top of each other they peck slash peck slap 
breach on top of each other. So it gets aggressive in, you know, like even though whales, uh, humpback whales are not aggressive at all, this display of, of power, it's like, wow, yeah. like you can feel it. It's complete adrenaline. And you can see how, like how much energy they're spending, like breathing and, you know, the blowholes like going, going, going when any other time they're cruising, you see they breathe and you don't see them again for 20 minutes. So this is awesome because it's like, it's basically like a fight in a pub, I guess, <laughs> <laughs> for, for the hottest chick. And when one wins, off they go. And, and they go you know, to another, yeah. so they go and find another lady. Oh, wow. Yeah. That, but that must be really full on. And I guess it's super dangerous to be around if you're in the water or whatever, if that's going on. Yeah, we, I mean, we have been in heat runs. We've really? jumped in the water. Really? Yeah. Because, look, they're in such a mission. As I said, they're never aggressive to humans. Obviously, there is a method of how to get in the water with them when in any situation. And we're very respectful of that. So we jump sort of to the side of the heat run, never at the front, never at the back. And you see five seconds of it because they move like they, they're going, they're chasing each other. You know, they're definitely, they got <laughs> tail on their mind. And that's about it. And they're just going for it. But you get to see how they blow bubbles underneath, how they're slashing each other underneath. And I mean, they carry around half a ton of barnacles. So, you know, like in the lower part of their head and in the pectoral fins and in the tail. So when they slash each other with it, that's like it's little like knives. Knife. Yeah. Yeah. <gasps> wow. So, yeah, it is like, I mean, everyone is like screaming and like <laughs> laughing and it's such an energy it's energy like you just get this energy of that that's incredible and so i guess that your free diving competences has been extraordinary being a well guide could you tell us a bit more about how you got introduced to free diving as well you told that earlier in bali you got introduced to free diving but you've actually become even more proficient and do you think you could sort of tell us a bit more about free diving and apnea yeah free diving is one of the sports it's a very mental thing and you can take it to many different levels. So the sport as such has evolved and transformed in my eyes in the last five years. The first time I did free diving, it was like six years ago. And I'm not a competition free diver. And for me, it's being um, part of complementing my surfing and just doing something fun and having the opportunity to see the underwater world. But freediving is great for anyone. Like I recommend anyone to do it. You know, it doesn't matter if you're going to take it to 30 meters or 10. You know, there's really cool things to see at five meters. And if you don't want to go deeper than that, that's totally fine. But we are wired, our body, our system is wired to freedive. And there's many things that, that happens in our physiology when we get in the water. Mm -hmm. So there's a thing called the mammalian dive response or mammalian dive reflex. And that basically puts your body in a standby mode when you're in water mm -hmm. or when your face is immersed in water. And when you're doing free diving, that kicks in and keeps your system working. So all the body, I won't go super technical on it, but all the blood from your limbs, so arms and legs, moves into your 
heart, lungs, and your brain. So all the oxygen in your bloodstream comes into your main organs to keep them nurtured and functioning. So you can just still go in and hang out in the water. The more you get to your limit, so the more your carbon dioxide increases because you are just holding your breath with one breath hole of oxygen, the stronger the urge to breathe gets. So it's not the lack of oxygen, but the high carbon dioxide that gives you that need to breathe. And once that happens, you get signals in your body that tell you you need to come up. And so eventually you train that and you get to know your limits. And for me, you know, I'm not in a rush. And so I've always been really patient with my signals and just listening to what my body is telling. But I think that's one of the main teachings of freediving that I can see that will help humanity in a lot of different ways. And it sounds so simple, but if you're connected to what your body is telling you, it's easier to connect to things outside of you and to other humans and to plants and to animals. And if we had that ability really developed, I think our planet would be a completely different place. And so I think that that's one of the main things that I love about freediving. It's like once I'm in the water and it doesn't matter, as I said, it could be 10 or could be 30 meters. I'm with myself. I'm with my thoughts. I can hear my heartbeat if I pay attention, even though it's really slow. (laughs) And, you know, it's like just like a meditation state that I cannot find even when I try to meditate inland. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. That's something that you never think about when you think freediving. You just think people going down, coming up again, but you don't actually necessarily think about the meditative state and how powerful that is for the body and the mind. That's really important. And I guess physically has a lot of benefits because you're holding your breath and your blood is basically slowing down so much. So your heart can slow down up to seven beats per minute. Wow. So then when you breathe again, there's this like massive flood of blood. Basically, your system is flooding again with blood and your spleen is releasing heaps of toxins. So it's like a detox every time you hold your breath. Wow. Besides, it burns like... I was reading the other day, it burns around 1,100 calories per hour (laughs) on a wetsuit. And I mean, and I guess you can pee in your wetsuit all you want. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because your spleen is going crazy, you know, like every time you hold your breath and you like breathe again, you know, it's like, "Eh, here we go, toxins out. (laughs) So um, I guess you obviously need to get proper training to actually achieve those levels of breath holds and things like that. What would you recommend listeners if they wanted to sort of inquire a bit more on freediving? Where where should they go and sort of check things out? There is, by now, as I said, you know, the sport has grown so much that it's very easy to find instructors wherever you are in the world. Mm -hmm. Just look for someone that is properly certified and you have a lot of fun. Like, I mean, the first rule of freediving is never to do it alone. Yeah basically for safety reasons, because if you get to the point 
that you need to breathe and you have it being ignoring those signals and you black out, someone can be there to rescue you. Yeah. But the beauty of it is like, it's not when people, like when people black out, because we have been in a relaxed state and because our body is drawn into this dive reflex, what happens besides all the blood going into your main organs is that your trachea shuts close. So you can't drown. So you can't drown. So there's no air coming out. There's no water coming in. And your brain is basically going, okay, shut down mode. We're just waiting. If someone pulls you up to the surface... There's a method to rescue people, like blow tap talk, it's called. And after that, people come back like that. Wow. So there's no CPR involved. There's like, you know, like if it's just a blackout and you have someone there. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, yeah. yeah we must, must warn the listeners that they have to do it in a kind of safe environment. Totally. Uh, not do it alone. Never. And uh, yeah, everything will be all right, but it's a great experience. It's amazing. It and it just brings so much fun and joy into your life. Like... Even when you just go snorkeling, you know, the things that you are able to see just because you can dive down to five meters, you know, and it's just like, I mean, to me at the beginning, it was funny. Even though I could stay down, I would need to come up and be like, did you see that? Did you see that? It was like, oh, so yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. So maybe moving on in the interview, basically you're a super multi-potentialite, like you've done so many different things, but also that have a meaning in a kind of there's a baseline here. And last week you mentioned that you were thinking about starting two new businesses. Could you tell us about that? Yes. One of them is bringing stuff made in Mexico to Australia. And lots of them are handcrafts. And I guess you can call it fashion. More in the slow fashion realm of things. And that is because I've always thought that handmade things have a very powerful meaning and you know anytime I travel and I get to buy something that is from the place that you know I can see the lady doing it there I'm like this is great like I'll rather do that than buy it in a shop yeah so that's sort of a little bit what I would like to bring to Australia so we have been working with a few families that weave bags or they I can't remember the name for... Uh, they make crochet or sew. They sew. Yeah, like they sew, but it's also like um, cross-stitch. Yeah, cross-stitch. Embroidery. embroidery that yeah. one. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, like we know these families and what they make. And I always think it's beautiful. So I wear a lot of it. And that's one of the things. So I would like to introduce that to Australia. And the second one is more directed to helping our earth process our waste. And that will have to be more with composting. Mm -hmm. So that's a system that has been proving and working in Mexico for about 10 years. And I haven't seen anything like that here. And Byron Bay being a place where people are, are aware and they're trying to make things better, I think it will be a great place to introduce it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's a composter. It's a kind of compost machine sort of thing. Yeah, it's a compost system. It's not a machine. It's uh, basically we have to put the work in. But I believe that that's part of our responsibility of manage our waste. Yeah. And that's something that it's truly missing. 
and until we don't realize that, I think not many things are going to change. And I live this in the island, for example, in Tonga, because it's such a small place that we do have to deal with our rubbish. Like it, anything that comes in the island, has, we have to take it out. Right. So you really get to see your waste, you know, like when you just put the bin outside the house. You don't know where it goes. Yeah. You don't know where it goes. You don't know how it has to be handled. And when you have to do that yourself, you learn a lot. And then from there, I'm hoping that people learn to consume better and inform themselves better. What am I getting into my house? You know, what if I have to deal with this for the next three months? <laughs> yeah. Because here, you know, I mean, Australia has a great system of recycling and, and same. You just put the bean out every week. Adios. You don't say it again, but, you know. You had to have it with you all the time. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, and also for the soils that are getting depleted because of pesticides and because of uh, exploitation, it's really good to be able to sort of give back to the soils with uh, the nice, rich compost. Yeah, and it's easy enough, like, to do. These beans, as I said, they've been, they've been tried in homes, like it's nothing industrial. There's nothing scientific about it. It's a chemical process, but... It's a chemical process, like cooking is a chemical yeah. process. So we do these things every day. We just need to put a little bit of time, and it takes five minutes. And so if you do it right, you have very rich soil that you can use for warm farms or for, you know, gardens. And and if not, you're just kind of like paying back a bit of the nutrients that we've taken from the soil into the land back again. That's, that's extraordinary. So what are you in need of to actually get these two projects off the ground? Well, number one, yes, I, I would love to get more into a business side of things. And the second one is I would like to contact people in Australia that are dealing with manufacturing things made out of recycled plastic because these beans in Mexico, they're made out of recycled plastics. And so we're trying to use that, you know, give it a better, better use because we know that recycled plastic is very resistant. It doesn't really go anywhere. That's why we, we're trying to do. So if there's anyone out there that knows any of those things, <laughs> hit yeah, just, me up. <laughs> yeah, reach out. So I guess what we could do is do a sort of recap of how to get hold of you and so that people can reach out to you to give you a helping hand yes. in both projects. So where can we contact you? So my handle at Instagram is at and then Talina. So T-A-L-I-N-A underscore Marina, like from the ocean. M-A-R-I-N-A. And the same for my email, Talina. Well, actually not the same. It's my name. So it's Talina Tapia, M-A-R, at gmail.com. Okay. Well, that's great. Well, we'll put that in the show notes as well so people can contact you directly. Gracias. No, that's fantastic. We're about to sort of finish this beautiful interview and slapping up the sun and everything. It's just a fantastic day. <laughs> I was just wondering if you could tell us what you felt when you caught your first wave. I think I was like, it was a bit of a shock. <laughs> <laughs> because as I was telling you before, I was like, you know, it, it wasn't a small wave. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was probably like a four foot wave and it was a little bit scary for a beginner, I guess. I just remember my eyes were bigger than my head and, <laughs> and I was screaming all the way down. But yeah, it was such a big emotion that 
it just got me hooked. That's amazing. That's wonderful. And the last thing is the four questions that I like to ask my guests mm-hmm. at the end of the interview. And it's uh, the sentences to finish. So the first sentence is, I love. I love the ocean. I wish. Ah, I wish. I wish uh, we humans would be more willing to connect with ourselves and then therefore will be easier to connect with our surroundings and environment. Lovely. And I miss? I miss Mexican food <laughs> so much. Is it, is it really not, not as good here? No. <laughs> I miss my mom's cooking. <laughs> and then the last one is I want. <gasps> I want. Oh, I want a sailboat. Oh, yes. That yes. Was it. Yes, that was yes. something that you were mentioning last week. Yes. Shout out to anyone over there that doesn't want a sailboat anymore. I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, Heidi, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you very much for joining me for this, with this special time together. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Amy. It's been lovely to surf again with you. Yeah, and, yeah, absolutely. Yes. So take care and all the best of luck with your your projects thank you and so your much endeavors see you soon bye Ciao. adios adios thank you for listening i hope you enjoyed this exchange with heidi she's certainly an inspiration for many of us and i just love her salty lifestyle you can find pictures of Heidi on theoceanriderspodcast.com and reference to all matters discussed in the podcast and the episode's transcript on the website too. You can also find the info and transcript of the episode in your podcast app under the show notes. To get hold of Heidi, skip over to her Instagram profile at talina underscore marina, where you'll be able to f- see what she's up to. If you like the Ocean Riders podcast, you can support it in a number of ways. First and foremost, you can head over to join the Facebook group at the Ocean Riders community, like my Facebook page at the Ocean Riders podcast, or follow me on Instagram at the Ocean Riders podcast. Second, you can rate and review the podcast on your podcast app. In fact, this helps me improve my ranking and increase my audience. Finally, and if you'd like to take your support one step further, head over to the Ocean Riders shop.com where I have a series of t-shirts, sweatshirts and homemade goodies that are going out that are selling fast. Right now I'm collaborating with a new design studio to produce the sweetest women's t-shirt possible and all the garments are certified organic, vegan and fair trade and they're so soft you won't want to take them off. Also 1% of my sales go to 1% for the planet organisations. Anyway, the sound and editing of this podcast wouldn't have been possible without my awesome podcast Jedi, Leng Inke. She does a wonderful job and deserves the credit. Thank you, Heidi, for your time and letting me surf with you. And thank you all for tuning in every episode and spreading the words to your friends and family. I can't express how grateful I am. Next episode, I'll be having a chat with a fellow podcaster. She hosts the Weird Waves podcast. And she is, in fact, a great late surfer. So stay tuned for episode 46 that will be out in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, take care, have fun and enjoy the waves. Ciao.